0: J.R.R. Tolkien builds a great extended culinary metaphor right into the heart of his essay on fairy stories. And there's a number of elements to this. He talks about a soup and bones that you derive the soup from. He'll also talk about broth or stock. He uses the term pot or cauldron. And then he also talks about cooks. So this is an extended extended, well-developed literary metaphor. He's almost modeling for us how to use metaphors thoughtfully. That is not to completely believe in them as if they answer everything, but to find where the similarities, the connections that reveal important features, important truths to us lie. And he's going to begin from somebody else. And in a certain way, this also exemplifies amplifies what he's talking about as you'll see in just a moment so he brings up this person dascent and he says in Dassen's words, I would say, we must be satisfied with the soup that is set before us and not desire to see the bones of the ox out of which it has been boiled. And he's using this to talk about people who are primarily focused on the origins of fairy stories and bring in all sorts of considerations and are looking at the elements and the history and you know the diffusion and the borrowings going on and lose sight of what the actual story is and whether you could say the soup tastes any good. They're focused on the bones that the stock has been prepared from, and they lose sight of what a soup actually is. And then he goes on and says, oddly enough, descent by the soup meant a mishmash of bogus prehistory founded on the early surmises of comparative philology. And by desire to see the bones, he meant a demand to see the workings and proofs that led to these theories. By the soup, I mean the story as it is served up by its author or teller and by the bones, its sources or material, even when by rare luck, these can be with certainty discovered. So Tolkien is saying, I'm taking this person's rather thin metaphor and I'm going to expand upon it. And here's how I'm changing the reference, the significance of these terms. So, the soup that we should appreciate is the story that's put before us. Now, not every soup is great, as we're going to see. The bones are the pieces of history, you could say, that are encompassed and incorporated within it. And you don't actually need to see the bones. You don't have to go poke around in the kitchen in order to appreciate the soup. I suppose in our day of celebrity chef culture, maybe some people feel that they need to, but those are the people who are kind of a pain in the rear to anyone with a genuine culinary background. Now, he does say one thing here finishing up this paragraph, I do not, of course, forbid criticism of the soup as soup. So it's perfectly fine to say that a story is not a good story. Even if it has great antiquity behind it, it might not be a particularly interesting, engaging, revealing fairy tale. So Tolkien is taking this metaphor originally from Descent and putting it into the very kind of pot that he's gonna be talking about in a moment. So a little bit later, after he's talked a bit about Thor and the faces of fairy tales, he says, let us return to the soup I mentioned above. Speaking of the history of stories and especially fairy stories, we may say that the pot of soup, the cauldron of story has always been boiling and to it have continually been added new bits Dainty and undainty. if you've ever prepared stock yourself you know that not everything that's going into it is visually aesthetically appealing but it's going to make a great stock you put the leavings and peelings and hind ends and skins of things and all those bones from the carcass into it and you get this wonderful savory thing and then you might add some other ingredients after you've you've got a good stock going now notice what he's saying here though this pot this called has always been boiling and to it has been continually added new bits so this paying attention to this metaphor can help us to not fall into an immediate trap which would be to say oh well there's eternal archetypes and you know the the pot of soup has always been boiling with exactly the same stock no 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 that's not true at all Token thinks that there is a development over time and that sometimes new bits are added in and they become part of the, the new stock, the new flavor, the new soup, right? And they can be served up in different ways. So it's there's the error of thinking that the ingredients, the original ingredients make the soup without the process of working it through. Then there's the, well, the soup has always been the same and it shows up differently in different cultures and different times, a sort of mistake on the other end. The soup is in the middle the soup is something that we do add something to from time to time and other things are broken down. So he thinks that there's mistakes that get made by those who are preoccupied with origins. And he considers a number of interesting, examples and he brings out some important points along the way so the first one he talks about is the goose girl and he says to take a casual example the fact that a story resembling the one known as the goose girl is told in the 13th century of Bertha Broadfoot mother of Charlemagne proves nothing either way it neither proves that the story was in the 13th century descended from Olympus or Asgard by way of an already legendary king of old on its way to become a house American a fairy. Tale, right? Nor that it was on its way up. The story is found to be widespread, unattached to the mother of Charlemagne or any other historical character. From this fact by itself, we certainly cannot deduce that it is not true of Charlemagne's mother, though it is the kind of deduction that is most frequently made from that kind of evidence. The opinion that the story is not true of Bertha Broadfoot must be founded on something else, on features in the story which the critic's philosophy does not allow to be possible in real life so that he would actually believe the tale even if it were found nowhere else or on the basis, the existence rather, of good historical evidence that Bertha's life was quite different so that he would believe the tale even if his philosophy allowed it was perfectly possible in real life. And Tolkien is saying, you don't have that. So let's be a little bit leery about making these super broad generalizations without a hell of a lot of evidence about precisely where this story motif came from. Then he talks about a interesting example, much closer to our own time, one that he imagines. He says, No one would discredit a story that the Archbishop of Canterbury slipped on a banana skin merely because he found that a similar comic mishap had been reported of many people, and especially of elderly gentlemen of dignity, right? He might disbelieve the story if he discovered that in it an angel or even a fairy had warned the Archbishop he would slip if he wore gaiters on a Friday. He might also disbelieve the story if it was stated to have occurred in the period between, say, 1940 and 1943, right? But there's no reason to automatically dismiss the story of the Archbishop of Canterbury at some point in time, in some indeterminate way, slipping on a banana peel just because so many other people had done so up until that time and continue to do so after that time. Then he talks about a really interesting case, King Arthur about which there's an entire literature, right? He says that these stories get added to the, the the pot, in fact, got into the soup, new bits added to the stock, a considerable honor for in that soup were many things older, more potent, more beautiful, comic, or terrible than they were in themselves with these first two stories. And then he says, Arthur, once historical, was also put into the pot. There, he was boiled for a long time. So, Arthur goes into the pot of story and there you know probably was a historical Arthur who was resisting the Saxons and all that but so many other elements are already in there he says he was boiled together with many other older figures and devices of mythology and fairy and even some other stray bones of history such as Alfred's defense against the Danes and we might even think about the you know legendary impossible meeting between Arthur and Charlemagne that's in some of the the Arthurian stuff and then what happens he says that Arthur emerged as a king of fairy right so this is quite an interesting example Arthur we're not talking now just about a story. We're talking about an entire cycle of stories spanning centuries in their development coming out of the pot. And this is where the cooks are going to be quite important. We'll come back to that in just a moment. He also talks about Hrothgar, Grendel, and Beowulf, right? He says that these were all in the pot as well. The situation is similar in the great northern Arthurian court of the shield kings of Denmark, the Skildingas of ancient English tradition, King Hrothgar and his family have many manifest marks of true history far more than Arthur. Yet, in the older English accounts of them, they are associated with many figures and events of fairy story. They've been in the pot, right? And so Hrothgar has been in the pot. So has Grendel, the intrusion of the ogre into the royal hall of Hrothgar, as is Beowulf himself, as he's going to say at one point. He also brings up the story of Fruaru and Ingeld. By by way of saying, well, by the way, that reminds me of this. And what is this kind of story? It's, you could say, star-crossed lovers, right? Could also be the story of Tristan and Isolde. Could be much, much later on, the story of Romeo and Juliet, right? Where you have people who fall in love with each other and they're not supposed to. And it doesn't turn out well for them in general. And he even brings up that the gods do this, at least in, I mean, it, it does happen in other mythologies, but he's talking about Norse mythology, where every once in a while, a God will fall in love with somebody they're not supposed to, and vice versa, a giant, right? One of the forces of evil. And he tells us that in all of these cases, these stories, these figures, these interesting elements have been added to the pot and boiled, something developed out of them. And now, you know, if we think about this metaphor of the pot, so the pot would contain many, many stories in that soup. How do you actually get something out of it? Here's where he tells us, if we speak of a cauldron, we must not wholly forget the cooks. There are many things in the cauldron, but the cooks do not dip in the ladle quite blindly. Their selection is important, right? The gods are after all gods, and it's a matter of some moment what stories are told of them. So we must freeze admit that a tale of love is more likely to be told of a prince in history, indeed is more likely actually to happen in the historical family, whose traditions are those of Golden Frey and the Vahner than those of Odin the Goth and the Necromancer, Glutter of Crows, Lord of the Slain. And so, you know, what you pick out of the pot determines what kind of story you can tell. But as a cook, as a chef, you might even say, you determine... What parts of the soup are going to be put before somebody, and what you might add yourself to that stock, to that broth, to that nice stew, as he calls it in other places. So, the author, the reciter, is very important in this. And at the very end of this section, he tells us that, you know, all too often, one of the things that we forget is the effect. Of what these fairy tales produce, produced now by these old things in the stories as they are. And he talks about something quite interesting here. He actually brings up one element that is culinary, namely the cannibal feast, right, in the juniper tree. And he says that without the stew and the bones, which children are now too often spared in mollified versions of Grimm. Grimm is, you know, the brothers collecting these fairy tales. And if you've ever read the Grimm's fairy tales, which I, I strongly advise you to do, they are pretty raw and sometimes enigmatic in what's going on. You know, by contrast to, say, Disney Cinderella, the evil stepsisters wind up doing damage to their own feet, trying to get them into the glass slipper. They cut off their heels. That's kind of gruesome, right? That's what Tolkien is going to call fairy tale horror. But he says, I wasn't really harmed by this. As a matter of fact, I think it's actually good to have that within the stories. Without the stew and the bones, the vision would largely have been lost. He says that these stories now have a mythical or total unanalyzable effect, an effect quite independent of the findings of comparative folklore and one which it cannot spoil or explain. They open a door on another time and if we pass through, though only for a moment, we stand outside our own time, outside time itself, perhaps. So we move from one metaphor to the other, but Eating the soup, eating a good soup, is part of what fairy tales actually allow us to do. Good fairy tales, not debased versions of them, that have essentially lost the magic or enchantment, or if you like, the savor and the flavor that was originally in the soup as it was once served. Special thanks to all of my Patreon supporters for making this podcast possible.